Our text this morning is Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 22, reproduced in your bulletin, or you can look there in your copy of the scriptures. Hebrews 11, verses 17 through 22. We are making our way through that which is frequently referred to as faith's hall of fame and the writer of Hebrews, to encourage us, uh, gives examples, Old Testament examples, of what it means to live by faith. Uh, You may recall, we won't go there, we won't dwell there, uh, but immediately preceding chapter 11 in Hebrews is chapter 10. How fascinating. Uh, In the end of chapter 10 establishes the doctrine of justification by faith. And so at the end of Hebrews 10, we are directed to know how to be saved by faith. And that leads into chapter 11, which now instructs us, having been saved by faith, how to live by faith. And actually, next Lord's Day, we're going to look at how to die by faith. Verse 17. By faith, Abraham... When he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him back from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. And then our focus will fall on Joseph today. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. As an older person, I was uh, somewhat astonished to look up this morning and find out uh, that the year was 1981, which would have been 42 years ago, that uh, marked the premiere of Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. And the reason why I think that film is somewhat significant is because of the opening sequence in the Indiana Jones movie. Uh, It opens uh, with a scene of high action through the cave to the idol, the removal of the idol, coming out through the the, the flashing darts, uh, being captured, running away from the natives, Swimming to the plane. I mean, all of this high-level action in like the first four minutes of the movie. And I think historically, that's not the way movies were done. Usually you were sort of eased into the story and the action would build. Even action and adventure movies, you know, would sort of action would build, you know, and then that would sort of be near, near the middle of the film. You'd really ramp up the intensity of the action. And, uh, and, you know, this was really startling and uh, certainly resonated with audiences who wanted to, let's, let's get to the action. And I believe, if you look, it sort of set the tone 
for a lot of action adventure movies after that. Uh, what immediately came to my mind were the Mission Impossible movies. They all start, uh, you know, with some action adventure scene. And then it sort of powers down and, and gets into uh, the movie. I say that to say this. When we get to Genesis 37 and we begin to read the account of the life of Joseph, it's really like that Indiana Jones movie style. I mean, you're just thrust in to the action of what's going on in the life of Joseph. And since Hebrews 11 is a chapter about faith, we're going to look at the life of Joseph together under three headings. First of all, Joseph's convulsive life, uh, the challenge of faith. And then Joseph's climactic confession, the confidence of faith. And then finally, of course, God's sovereign control, the assurance of faith. And so in Genesis 31, it begins with really a very benign statement. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers. And so that was his ordinary life. And right away, we find out two things. One, Joseph was Jacob's favorite, a mistake we looked at in previous patriarchs. And then because he was his favorite, we find that Jacob uh, gifts Joseph with some sort of elaborate, ornate, sometimes it's called multicolored coat. And his 11 brothers knew that Joseph is the favorite, and he gets the gifts, and he gets the attention. And being the godly brothers that they were, they hated him. And uh, said they, they, they were jealous and, and hated him. And, and they hated him the more, and they, they hated him the more. So one day the 11 brothers are out tending the sheep, and uh, dad says to Joseph, go see the brothers, make sure they're okay, and then bring me back word that everything's all right. So Joseph goes and he finds the brothers, but while he's still a ways off, the brothers conspire together. Now's our chance. We're far away from home. Here comes that dreamer. Let's kill him. And so they hate him so much, they decide that they want to kill him. And one of the brothers intervenes, intercedes uh, for Joseph. And, you know, Don't kill him, let's just throw him in a pit. You know, because secretly he's going to come back later and endeavor to save Joseph. So the brothers are persuaded. They throw Joseph in the pit, you know, and uh, having dinner while he's just over there, <laughs> probably going to be left to die. And uh, as luck would have it, just by random chance, here comes a Midianite caravan coming by. And one of the brothers is like, ooh, ooh, let's not kill him. Let's sell him <laughs> into slavery. And then we can get some money and we'll take the coat. We'll dip it in some animal blood. We'll bring it back to dad and tell him that uh, a beast has attacked Joseph and killed him. And so they do. Joseph is sold uh, to the Midianite caravan. The brothers come back, give the report to Jacob, who is uh, literally devastated, just inconsolable at the loss of 
Joseph. And so as the Midian, uh, Cara, uh, Cara, Midianite caravan arrives in Egypt, that was its destination to sell its wares, uh, Joseph, uh, just by chance, just random uh, blind fate, uh, is sold to Potiphar, who happens to be the captain of the guard of Pharaoh in, in Egypt. And so Joseph becomes the servant of Potiphar, and uh, everything Joseph does succeeds. He's wise, he's knowledgeable, he's organized, he's an administrator, he's a visionary, and, uh, and everything he touches prospers. Potiphar is delighted. This is great stuff. And it doesn't take very long before Potiphar says, you know, bud, you be in charge of everything, and then I don't have to worry about anything, because it's clear, the scripture says, it's clear that your God is with you and blessing you in everything you do. So great. So now Joseph is in charge of everything. And everybody is happy and satisfied and content. Except Potiphar's wife. Uh, the scripture also gives a very interesting description of Joseph. Uh, it says he was well built and handsome. Uh, I think the literal Hebrew means he was a hunk. You know, I, I was thinking about it. What is that like? And I was thinking of, uh, you know, Chris Evans, Captain America, that guy, you know, uh, or even uh, Thor uh, in, in the movies, that guy, handsome and well-built. Yeah, that's Joseph, apparently. And uh, Potiphar's wife is not content or satisfied, uh, so she wants Joseph in the most intimate way. And so day after day, Potiphar's wife is pleading with Joseph uh, to come and have his way with her. And he refuses. He's like, how can I betray the trust of my master? And then another uh, iconic verse of scripture, how can I do this thing and sin against God? Not sin against Potiphar, which it would have been, but how can I do this thing and sin against God? Well, as it happens, you know, just... Uh, you know, just, just by chance. Uh, all the servants are out in the field. Joseph is in the home. Potiphar's wife is in the home. And this is her chance. So she grabs him and, and says, this is it, bud. Let's, let's do it. And he's like, no. And, and she grabs the coat. He takes the coat off, leaves her clutching the coat, and he runs away. And Potiphar's wife uh, decides uh, that she's had enough and she feels humiliated and so now she's going to get her revenge and she tells the servants that Hebrew that my husband brought into the house uh, attempted to rape me uh, and when he heard me scream he ran away and I still have his coat and Potiphar's wife I mean Potiphar comes home he'd been away and here's the story Potiphar is enraged that his trust has been betrayed by the testimony of his wife who says that this trusted service attempted to violate his wife. And so Potiphar has Joseph thrown into an Egyptian prison. And so now there is Joseph suffering for not having done anything wrong, but still being made to suffer. And then what are the odds 
that Joseph gets thrown into prison with the Pharaoh's cupbearer and chief baker, who also did something or other uh, to get on Pharaoh's bad side, and they're in the same prison, and they're all there together. And so they're there and serving, and, you know, Joseph is doing his thing as a prisoner, being obedient, serving, doing what he needs to do. The chief guard of the prison sees that Joseph can run this thing better than he can. And so he makes Joseph in charge of the whole prison. Joseph's in charge of the prisoners, their regimen, what they do, where they go, those sorts of things. And it just so happens, uh, by an amazing coincidence, you know, these things just so, so coincidental, that the cupbearer and the baker have a dream. But they don't know what it means. And so they're depressed. Got this dream. Seems like it's significant, but we don't know what it means. Joseph says, well, you know, my God interprets dreams. You tell me the dream. God will help me interpret the dream. And so they share the the dream. Uh, Each one shares their dream. The the cupbearer, his dream about vine and wine. That makes sense. The baker his dream uh, about uh, bakery and bread and then some birds coming and sort of eating the bread, uh, that kind of thing. What does it mean? Joseph, well, I got good news and bad news. (laughs) Says to the cupbearer, the good news is in three days, in in three days, Pharaoh is going to restore you to your position as chief cupbearer. And the baker's like, sweet, Ooh, ooh, tell me my dream. Tell me my dream. And Joseph says, well, um, in three days, Pharaoh's also going to restore you to his court, at which time he's going to hang you to death. (laughs) And that's going to be the end of you. Sure enough, in three days, happens to be Pharaoh's birthday, just the perfect alignment of the stars. You know how that works, astrologically speaking. And, uh, and Pharaoh does. He restores the cupbearer to his position, calls the baker, and, uh, and has him put to death. And before they go, Joseph says, by the way, guys, when you get into Pharaoh's court, don't forget about me <laughs> and my ability to interpret dreams and, and how I'm not even here justly. And let Pharaoh know that I want out. And so the cupbearer is delighted. He's ecstatic uh, to be freed from prison and back in Pharaoh's service. And he's so happy, he forgets everything about Joseph for two years. Two years. And then, as it turns out, uh, again, just by uh, a quirk of, of, of fate. Pharaoh has a dream. And, and Pharaoh has two dreams. And they're these you know, pretty bizarre dreams of fat cows who are grazing and then skinny cows who come and eat the fat cows uh, without getting fat themselves. And then that, that wakes him up. That'll wake you up. Goes back to sleep and then seven nice uh, ripe stalks of corn and seven scraggly uh, withered, uh, dry Texas in August corn, and uh, <laughs> you know, and the and the and the the 
the decrepit corn eats the, the, the healthy corn, and that wakes him up, and Pharaoh's distressed now, and he's disturbed, and nobody in his court, all his magicians and all of his advisors, nobody can tell him his dream. He said, I don't know what this dream is like. And like, the cupbearer, oh, yeah. Ooh, ooh, wait, now I remember. There's a guy in prison. He told me my dream. Maybe he can help with yours. Great. So, uh, you know, you know what they say about karma. This is great for Joseph. So they call him, get this guy up here and see. Tells him the dreams, and Joseph, uh, once again, you know, I got good news and bad news. <laughs> Seems to be his lot in life. Uh, he says, the good news is Egypt is about to experience seven years of abundance. The harvests are going to be great. It's going to be spectacular. But that's going to be immediately followed by seven years of famine. And it's going to be the worst famine the Mediterranean world has ever known. And so Joseph continues, says, well, you know, Pharaoh, uh, if I were you, you know, what you might do is put somebody in charge of collecting, you know, maybe 20% of the produce, of the abundance during each year, during the seven years of plenty. Then, and put it in storehouses, have, have storehouse cities for all of this. When the seven years of famine hit and everybody is starving to death because there is no food, then they can come to the storehouses and servants can dole out the food. Pharaoh's like, that's a great idea. You be in charge. <laughs> Okay, and Pharaoh appoints Joseph second in authority in Egypt, second only to Pharaoh himself, and actually puts him in a chariot and parades him through the capital city, proclaiming this man in authority is over everybody, everything, all the time, Except me. I am the only one. And great. So whatever he says, you need to do. Okay, so the seven years of plenty come. Joseph organizes the whole thing. Has them put things into storehouses. And then the seven years of famine come. Uh, just as Joseph had said, uh, it would. Now this famine is not just localized or restricted to Egypt. This is a famine in the whole Mediterranean world. And Joseph's dad, Jacob, and his 11 brothers are still back in Canaan. And they are suffering the effects of the famine. And they're about to die because there is no food to be had anywhere. And so Jacob says to the brothers, I've heard there's food in Egypt. Why are we just sitting here dying? Go to Egypt, apply with whoever is in charge down there, and see if we can buy some food and bring it back so that we don't die. Of course, 
Jacob also says, but leave Benjamin, the youngest, here. You know, he's kind of like, all I got. And so leave him here, you guys go. So the brothers go. You have to make your appeal to the prime minister, second in command. That's Joseph. They appear before Joseph. He recognizes them immediately. But they don't recognize him. It's probably been somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 to 12 years since the brothers last saw Joseph off into the distance, fading away over the horizon with the Midianite caravan that they had sold him to. And who knows, you know, he's probably uh, dressed as an Egyptian and an Egyptian dignitary. They don't recognize him. Joseph recognizes them immediately. And really, without going into the details at this point, Joseph concocts this elaborate plan to essentially string his brothers out. He, he gives them some food, but takes the money that they were going to pay him, puts it back in their sacks. They leave, they discover the money's still there, and they figure they're going to think, the Egyptians are going to think, we stole the money and will probably kill us. We can't do that. So they go back home, and, and they have uh, food for a while, but the food they bought from Egypt runs out. And so, uh, you know, just uh, the way things are, they're going to have to go back and, and get more. And, and they are just terrified of, of that prospect. But they go back, and... And this goes back and forth. And then uh, finally, uh, when the brothers are there, Joseph can't take it any longer. He just, he, uh, several times he's had to leave their presence, uh, just weeping for seeing his family again, and then, you know, con, uh, composing himself and coming back. And then, and then finally, he reveals himself to the brothers I'm Joseph, I'm your brother. And they have two reactions. The first reaction is, no way. And then the second reaction is, if that's true, we are probably dead <laughs> because of what we did to our brother all those years ago. And Joseph, you know, his dad is still alive. Yes, he is. Joseph says, look, guys, here's, you know, a bunch of, of produce. Here, here's all sorts of, of commodities. Go, go back to Canaan. Get your wives, your children, dad. It's only the second year of the seven-year famine. Just bring them down to Egypt and live here, and I'll make sure everybody has plenty to live on. And so they do. And, you know, they, they do. Just uh, just in the mystery of how things happen, uh, all of Israel, all of Jacob, and all of his family uh, end up in the land of Goshen at Pharaoh's command and as Pharaoh's guests in his country. And they're there, they're settled, things are good, and the time comes for, uh, for uh, Jacob 
uh, to die. He knows that uh, he's, he's at the end of his life, uh, and he calls the family together to see them one, one more time. And, and Jacob uh, is gathered to his father, as I think that's the biblical term. He, he passes away, and then there's some mourning, uh, of course, for his passing. And now the brothers figure, after all this, after all that's gone on, Joseph has probably been postponing his revenge for the sake of dad. So dad, but now dad's gone, and there is nothing to restrain Joseph from exacting his revenge for what we did to him and all the pain and suffering we put him through and our, our, our hatred and our, our murderous plot. And so they uh, tell Joseph, you know, by the way, Joseph, just so you know, uh, Dad said, just before he died, you, I don't think you were there for this part, uh, but, but Dad said uh, that you need to forgive us uh, for what we did and don't do us any harm. And, uh, you know, Joseph, he knows what's going on, you know, and he's, he, he's sad that his brothers think so ill of him to think that that's what he would do. And then Genesis 50, 20, uh, Joseph's climactic confession, summing up everything that's gone on, Joseph says this, as for you, you rascals, that's parenthetical, <laughs> you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive. The NIV translates it, God meant it for good, for the saving of many people. And so just think of how all of the uh, links in the chain of Joseph's life are, are, are put together. You know, think, think of it this way. If there was no coat, if, if no coat had been gifted, there would be no hatred by the brothers. If there was no hatred by the brothers, there would be no plot to kill him and no plan to sell, sell him to the Midianites. If there was no selling him to the Midianites, there'd be no Joseph going down to Egypt. If there was no Joseph going down to Egypt, there'd be no Potiphar. If there's no Potiphar, there's no Potiphar's wife. If there's no Potiphar's wife, there's no being cast into an Egyptian prison. <laughs> there's no being cast into an Egyptian prison, there's no interpreting the servant's dreams. If there's no interpreting the servant's dreams, there's no being called by Pharaoh to interpret his dreams and they go uninterpreted. There's no interpreting Pharaoh's dreams. There's no provision for the seven years of famine. There's no provision for the seven years of famine. There's no provision for Jacob and his sons and descendants in order to live. There's no provision for them to live. Then there's no Israel and there's no descendants 
to continue the line, especially Judah. Because if there's no Judah, there's no line of descendancy that leads to Jesus. If there's no Jesus, there's no Savior. There's no forgiveness. There's no atoning sacrifice on the cross. There's no resurrection from the dead. And if there's no Jesus, there's no salvation. My brothers and sisters, do we realize our eternal destiny and the forgiveness of our sins was determined by a father giving his son a coat? Of course, this uh, all directs us to the sovereignty of God, the rule and reign of God over everything. If this story tells us anything, if the life of Joseph tells us anything that we should get out of this and which we should take to heart, there is no such thing as luck. There is no such thing as chance. There is no such thing as fate. There is no such thing as Mother Nature. Mother Nature didn't decide that there should be a famine. God decided that. There is no such thing as karma. There is no such thing as coincidence. There is no such thing as accident. Those, none of those things, there's no such thing as chance or probability. None of those things exist. Our world, everything in it, from the greatest things down to, as Jesus said, even the falling of a sparrow or the hairs numbered on our head are under the sovereign rule, reign, providential control of God. And that means two things for us. If you love practical application, here it comes, because it doesn't get any more practical than this. First of all, the sovereignty of God is the most comforting truth the Bible tells us, second only to our salvation. Everything is according to his plan, his purpose, his design. Does that mean we can always understand it? No. But just because we don't understand it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. <laughs> God rules and reigns. And what we don't understand by sight, we embrace by faith until that day when we in glory will be able to see God has done all things well. Everything from the beginning of creation to the culmination of it when Jesus returns. God has done all things well. This is, this is immeasurable comfort and support in grief, in tragedy, in perplexity, in distress. We know that as the confession says, God has ordained all things whatsoever comes to pass. And this is a God who is good, a God who is kind, a God who is loving, a God who is gracious, a God who is compassionate, a God who knows that we're just made from the dust. He's the one in charge and ruling and controlling everything. Secondly, the sovereignty of God means 
Everything we do is charged with significance. Everything we do is charged with significance because you don't know what God might choose to use. You don't know. I mean, did, did Jacob really think the gifting of that coat was for the ultimate purpose of the salvation of sinners through Jesus Christ? Of course not. He just gave him a coat. It wasn't a great idea, but that, that's all he did. You don't know how God might use even the smallest things, the thank you note that you send to somebody, the phone call that you make to somebody, the smile that you give to the checkout person at the grocery store, the encouragement that you give to some stranger, the prayer you, you offer, maybe only one time. You don't know what God may choose to use which is why everything is significant. Everything is significant that we do because of God's sovereignty. And of course, God's sovereign control gives us the assurance of faith. Uh, Clearly, Joseph is a type, an Old Testament picture of Christ, one who was betrayed, one who was unjustly treated, one who was thought of with ill will by his siblings, one who suffers unjustly, and one whose unjust suffering ultimately ends up in the salvation of many people. That's Joseph. That's Jesus. And there's old Jacob leaning on his staff, looking at his children, and especially Joseph, and saying in so many words, now my eyes have seen the salvation of God, I can die in peace. And hundreds of years later, there's old Simeon coming up the stairs of the temple, and here come Mary and Joseph with Jesus. And what does Simeon say? Now my eyes have seen the salvation of God, I can die in peace. And the salvation that we have through faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done is spoken of to us in the scriptures in the same context of the wicked deeds of men and the sovereign purposes of God. Acts 2.22. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. Jesus was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, if they weren't responsible for what they did, they couldn't be called wicked. But they were responsible for what they did. They intended it for evil. This man, with the help of wicked men, was put to death by nailing him to the cross. How wicked men by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. Acts 4, indeed Herod and Pontius met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They did 
what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. It doesn't get any more deeply mysterious than that. They did, of their own free will, what your power and will had determined beforehand. And then Ephesians 1, in him we have been chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in accordance with the purpose of his will. What is Genesis 50:20? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for two. Genesis 50:20. It's the Old Testament version of Romans 8:28. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. It doesn't say that everything that happens is good. Joseph being hated wasn't good. Joseph being sold into slavery wasn't good. Joseph being falsely accused. Those things are not good. It's not what the scripture says. It doesn't say everything that happens is good. It does say God is masterfully controlling, weaving together all things together for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, even as we consider how our thoughts of you are too small, because you sovereignly, actively, wisely, lovingly guide and control and direct all things whatsoever comes to pass, and use them according to your will, Thank you for the comfort and the assurance this affords our hearts. And may we live in accordance with your revealed will. In Jesus' name, amen.